Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with Didi Pursehaus from Thetford, Vermont, um, author of Ecology of Care, Medicine, Ecology, Money, and the Quiet Power of Human and Microbial Communities. She's also the chair of the Soil Carbon Coalition. And one of the things I'm really, really excited about talking to you today, uh, Didi, is the soil sponge, which has yeah. actually been, it's been picking up attention, I've noticed, in the last, last couple months. This seems to be it, it's, that term has entered you know, the conversation, at least around soil rebuilding and, and sustainability. Um, so looking forward to, to digging into some of that stuff. Um, from, your, from your bio, you've, I mean, you've been involved in this kind of combination of soil and health for a really long time. And, it, and um, you said that you'd spoken at the UN. Um, it just, I'm really quite fascinated like where your trajectory even began and how you decided that what was important for you was to work on soil. Um, maybe that would be an interesting way to get started. Sure. Um, yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I was working in holistic healthcare for about 22 years. Um, and the last nine, so I was, I was doing acupuncture and a lot of health coaching or health consulting uh, in terms of people's dietary habits and lifestyle habits and um, social and emotional support systems, et cetera. Um, actually started off um, my very first couple of years of my practice, I was focused on Chinese herbal medicine. Um, <clears throat> and over those years of working, I became familiar with the Weston Price the work of Weston Price, who was a dentist who traveled the world looking at communities whose teeth did not decay and who had um, proper teeth spacing from their youth. And, and he found, this was back, I believe, in the 1930s, he found that all around the world there were these pockets of people who um, had beautiful, wide-spaced, healthy teeth into old age and did not, um, and didn't decay and 
and that they also had all these other great health markers. So their hearts were healthy, their uh, bodies just generally were healthy, they were re resistant to cancers, etc. And and they were in communities, they were living in communities, and he, he realized that the commonalities were the diets that they were eating. And, and he spent the rest of his life trying to understand what the commonalities across those communities were. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that he found was that uh, the meats that they were eating or the dairy that they were eating, if they did eat dairy, were from grass-based or natural systems. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and, and then there were also things he realized that they were eating a lot of lacto-fermented foods. So um, they were eating sauerkrauts, they were eating yogurts, they were e eating all kinds of lacto-fermented foods. Um, and th there's a lot more to it than that, but I'll just stop there because that because those two things became a big part of my care for people was thinking about the quality of the animal products that they ate rather than the amount. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, in Vermont, where I was practicing, we have we have availability to the community of either one, so you can get industrial. Uh, industrially raised foods, but you can also get things where you know the, who raised everything that you're eating and um, you can go talk to the cows or <laughs> chickens or whatever uh, and and where you can get things that are raised without without pesticides, without any additives, etc, and that are raised within a an ecological context so so eating what they eating eating more or less what what the ancestors of those animals would have eaten. So um, I also did a lot of barter in my work. And um, so I actually, most of the food during those years that I ate came from the farmers that I was working with and who were patients of mine. So, so I literally would sit down to a meal and know, know exactly where everything on my plate came from and for my children as well. So this became a an intrinsic part of the healthcare that I was offering was helping to educate people about where to find uh, really high quality foods, um, what the value of lacto-fermentation is and sourdough, you know, if in baking for those who are eating grains, um, how, to, how to find breads, et cetera, that had been lacto-fermented. And I became fascinated with, um, <clears throat> with the microbial work uh, uh, in the food system and how it impacts our own health. So that was so that was sort of one thread was thinking about grass grass based uh, dairy and meat systems, pasture raised systems. Thinking about the the microbial work that's going on in um, in our own guts and 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 how it helps to uh, if you're lacto-fermenting something on a counter, how that helps to preserve the food and prevent um, bacterial infection of the food. Um, so those, so there were a couple of threads there, but I hadn't really put those two together very much. And, um, and then I started uh, hearing about peak oil, and uh, which was a big thing, you know, people talking a lot about it in Vermont uh, back in the 90s. And around the same time, I also traveled to Cuba 
to look at their healthcare system. This was in the mid mid 90s while they were in the middle of their special period. And the special period in Cuba was that they, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Cuba overnight lost access to petroleum. Um, <clears throat> and they had to switch from um, an agricultural system and a healthcare system to that were based based on access to petroleum and all the things that are made from petroleum to uh, a system that was not based on petroleum products or on oil. So I so not knowing I did not know that this was happening in Cuba when we arrived there. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to get all this great Cuban food. And no, 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 we were <laughs> we were. Um, this was a period of really, really. Um, the, the, the whole Cuban country had to kind of rethink everything they were doing. And we, we arrived right in the middle of a lot of the, the chaotic part of it. But very soon after that, and it was already starting to happen while we were there, just not in the region where we were traveling. Um, they, they really redid their healthcare system and their agricultural system to, to be based much more on alternative therapies um, on real, real human-based care, which they had a great step up with um, that, you know, they'd already had these doctors and nurses living in the neighborhoods. They already had health care for everyone. Um, but also they redid their agricultural system so that it was, it was much uh, less industrialized. So, so this is kind of a long story. So, <laughs> uh, so those, so those experiences of um, treating my patients and trying to think about more holistic healthcare in a much bigger sense, and this idea that our healthcare system was very, very um, dependent on oil and and vulnerable because of that, and our whole our society in general, got me thinking about how, what would a resilient healthcare system, what would a resilient community look like in the United States? So um, around the same time, I, um, so I, so I got, I got a small grant to go and talk to what were called transition towns, um, which are towns that were, and, and I'm guessing you were probably involved in the transition town movement somewhat. Yeah, <laughs> um, somewhat. So to, to talk about um, about the vulnerability of our healthcare system, because transition towns were looking at food and transportation and various other things, but they really weren't looking that much about health. Uh, so I so I traveled around New England mostly giving talks about what I'd seen in Cuba, what what I thought was possible, and what I thought needed to change in terms of healthcare. It, during that same period, I was uh, at, I had a, a table at a, uh, what do you call it, kind of a, an expo, I think they called it, called Sunfest, that put together alternative energy and alternative healthcare. One floor was for alternative healthcare and one floor was alternative energy. And I thought to myself, huh, what's, what is the link here? You know, because they, the, besides the fact that they both have the word alternative in the beginning, <laughs> they're not really usually very linked. And so the night before I started trying to write down some thoughts, 
and I ended up writing something that I called the Ecological Medicine Manifesto. And um, it was a set of about 12 points that I handed out. Um, and that piece of paper became really the base of this book, The, the Ecology of Care. And, and it was really looking at the, these interactions, these holes and how, how like microbial communities in the soil and in our guts, et cetera, all contribute to health, how self-organizing communities are needed at every level. So also within our human communities. Uh, I, I didn't at that point completely get the soil piece. So I, I knew that the quality of soil was important for the quality of the food. Um, but it was just a very superficial understanding of that. Well, superficial maybe isn't the right word, but I didn't, I didn't understand the full implications of it at that point, even though I'd been working with these farmers for many years. Um, I, li I like that. It's, it's, it's a nice logical progression. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it seemed opportunistic at the time it was happening. But. Um, yeah, I mean, mo it's a little bit hard to follow because it is very, uh, it's a very, e I would say it's an ecological progression, right? I mean, it's, I, not, yeah. it's, not, it's definitely not linear, but, um, but there but, is a story. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it was it's a, a huge challenge of trying to write this story into this book because because it's not linear. Um, and so, and so would you say other influences? So. so, so would you say that the the trajectory you've just you've just described and taken us through is, in at least in some sense, the the progression through the book itself? Yes. Yeah, so the book really really tells this story, but then it then it also has a whole. Um, it has a whole historical context and a lot of research that so it goes back and forth between a personal story and sort of the story of our time or the story of our culture. It's really, really, really interesting. And that's so often when I do these interviews with folks, I'm struck by, by parallels and convergences, right? Right. And um, so peak oil, uh, you know, and, and the work of Richard Heinberg, um, which led directly to the whole kind of global, um, development of resilience strategies, which was in fact um, an integral part to the arising of the transition concept. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I actually had left Vermont. Um, oh, I don't think our, our listeners actually know that. Um, I at one point lived on pretty much the other side of the hill from UDD. Yes in the village of Stratford, Vermont, which was a, an epicenter for this kind of thinking even. Yeah, and it's really a sister village to Thetford where, yeah, where there's a lot of cross-pollination, yeah. Absolutely so. Um, uh, and, and so there, there's, a, there's a parallel there. Um, I hadn't really heard about peak oil at the time that I left, which was in the late 90s, because um, I was really focused so much more on human rights in, in my work at that time. But when I arrived in Ireland, which was my next stop, one of the things that uh, I ended up doing was working with a couple of other people and um, our work led to the founding of a cultural center based on sustainability. Mm. And peak oil was right there, you know, at, at, at the start of, of the educational work that we were doing. Um, I remember showing the film on the, on the transition of Cuba from petro-intensive to organic, 
which was, you know, almost like a leitmotif of the early resilience um, talks that various people were giving. And the Transition Town Network was um, kind of formulated in part through presentations at our center by Rob Hopkins. Okay. So it, it's just phenomenal how, how stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> ends so up is, kind of pinging around. <laughs> so then, so the next chapter is where really where the, the rubber really hit the road, so to speak. Um, was that during this whole thing, I kind of thought about climate change as this thing that other people were working on. I was working, you know, on on the sort of oil piece, and and other folks were. We're, we're thinking about climate change. I, I didn't really have a concept of what climate change meant in the Northeast. You know, I, in, in my own selfish way, I thought, well, you know, it's not, it's not really gonna impact us here if our winters were a little shorter and our summers were a little longer. We'd have more food, we'd have, you know, better lives, et cetera. So who cares? Right, <laughs> right. We'd, we'd be more resilient. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then and then came Irene, Hurricane Irene, or what was called only just a tropical storm, Irene in Vermont. And um, and in I mean, this was now we're now we're into what was that, 2011? I guess that was 2011. Okay. Um, and um, and Irene was I, I had I had actually just taken a, a course to help run our our town emergency shelter because I was deep into writing writing this book now six years into writing it um, still trying to figure out how to tie all these concepts together and I thought okay well I'm writing about resilient communities and sort of in terms of healthcare. let me take this course and learn how to run our town and new newly formed town emergency shelter thinking to myself you know when are we ever going to need an emergency shelter on the top of the hill in Thetford um, you know it was unfathomable to me, like, are we going to have an earthquake? Is this going to be, you know, some, you know, maybe it's a war or something, but it seemed very distant possibility that we would use it, that we were just kind of, just kind of trying to be up to state standards for care of our people, et cetera. But, but I took the training and I think it was a matter of weeks after the training <laughs> that suddenly here was this hurricane coming our way. And, um, and I got a call saying, come to the shelter. You know, there's roads that are being flooded out. And, um, and there we were in the middle of Hurricane Irene. And in the midst of it, I went down to go look at the covered bridge in Thetford Center that I'm sure you drove through many times on Tucker Hill mm -hmm. Road. Mm -hmm. to, to see what was going on. And this here, my beloved river, I'm a real river person, the Ampampanusik River, uh, somewhere I swim every day, multiple times a day all summer and, and a, lot of, a lot of the fall and spring and sometimes even in the winter. And, um, and here it was just completely unrecognizable, just this swollen monster about to take out the bridge. And, and I thought, whoa, this is, this is serious. And that evening, um, you know, looking on Facebook and getting calls from friends, et cetera, realized, wow, this storm is just tearing the state apart. So I had been at that point, up to that point, thinking of climate change as, as warming or as CO2, which neither of which seemed that relevant. But it was right after that storm that I realized, oh, 
in places like Vermont, climate change is about water. And in fact, around the world, climate change is really about water in the sense of this, the way that we experience most of the symptoms are about flooding, about drought, wildfires, which is very related to lack of water in the landscape, um, uh, food and water security, uh, all, all of that, you know, that even, and, and more recently in the last six years or so, I've, I've understood that water as actually a big driver of climate change, not just, it's, it's not just a symptom, it's actually part of the problem is how we manage water in our landscapes and in our lives. So, um, so after Irene, I would drive around and drive, you know, and wherever I went, and there's a lot of driving to be done in Vermont because, because there's no public transportation here. Um, and all our roads here, you know, are all built on what used to be deer paths, and then were foot paths, and then were horse paths, and then were carriage paths, but they all go along the streams and the rivers. And, and they were, we, we had, in one night at, at Irene, we lost, I think, um, 500 miles of road and like 200 or 300 bridges in one night. That's a wake-up call, isn't it? Yeah. And, um, and so all I could think about is what's going to happen the next time we get a big rain here? Because I heard Bill McKibben speak soon after that, and he made it really clear that that one of the ways we were already experiencing climate change in Vermont and one of the ways that we would continue to uh, was through these bigger and bigger storms more and more frequently. Um, so, so I started reading, reading up on climate change and realizing I really have to include this in my book and started quickly trying to understand it, quickly trying to understand how the healthcare system contributes to climate change was one of the things, um, how climate change impacts public health uh, and as I was asking these questions, I realized these were not questions that like 350.org was looking at at all. When I called them to ask them, they said, would you like to write up a, a page for us? <laughs> and I thought, whoa, <laughs> um, I guess I'm sort of uh, on the cutting edge here looking at these questions. Later, I realized there were people looking at this on an academic level, but the kind of popular climate movement was not thinking about it, just similarly to the way that the popular transition town movement wasn't really looking at health. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that, you know, because the, the discussion around larger impacts of climate change does, in fact, touch on things like, uh, you know, increased range for disease-carrying insects. Um, it, and it touches on things that are, you know, clearly a, a health impact, such as famine. Um, but when you mentioned that the healthcare system itself has an impact on climate, I think, even for me, that's not something that, that I have you know, put any thought into. Um, and I'm sure for the general public, it's almost a non sequitur. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what, what part of that was tied it back into the petroleum question, that if we're looking at the, the CO2 issue with climate change, um, which, as I'll explain later, isn't, isn't the only piece to it. It's, um, it's a very key piece, but it's not, not the only driver we're learning. Um, that healthcare is tremendously dependent on on fossil fuels for not just for heating and cooling, et cetera, but 
for all of the, its entire supply chain of ever, everything that is used in a hospital from the drugs to the tubing to the plastic bags, um, much of which is disposable and disposed of you know, frequently to the, you know, the washers and dryers that have to wash all those sheets over and over and over and over again. It's all dependent on fossil fuels. So very, very vulnerable um, and also a huge contributor. If you think of it in terms of dollars, um, I think 16 or 17 percent of our uh, the GDP or the, you know, of our, basically of our economy um, is in healthcare. And so you could say that that's, you know, it's contributing that much, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One, one way of thinking of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but but uh, just to get we're, to get to the soil sponge. <laughs> we, yeah, let's get there. Let's, yeah, let's get to the soil sponge. Um, so so I um, started reading up on everything I could on climate change and came across a book called Cows Save the Planet by Judith Schwartz. Who I spoke with a few weeks ago. Oh, great. And um, and she's also in Vermont. Yes, she is. And she's because she's actually become a close friend. Um, and as I was reading that book, I realized, oh, soil and grazing animals and the health of the soil ties together all the things that I have been trying to tie together in this manuscript of mine. And and not only that, but it can really address everything that I have been thinking about. And, and that, that became truer and truer, you know, the, the, the more that, that time has gone along, the more I've come to appreciate that, that the health of the soil or, or larger than that, the functionality of the whole landscape uh, is, is, the play, is the leverage point for all of our current concerns in the world. I mean, I'm sure there are a few that aren't on that list, but we can make a long list of everything that we worry about or concerned about with climate change and with everything else. We'll um, come back to the functional soil. To yeah. the functional soil. And, um, and in the middle of that book, I made a decision to turn around and stop treating patients one at a time and start trying to address public health and the health system through working with soil. So I called up a friend and said, who do you know is working on this? Um, they gave me a few names um, and, I, and I literally within months um, had, had written a small grant. A former patient of mine gave me a check to start working on this and, and decided that the best way for me to, uh, to get involved was, would be to write curriculum. Because for me, um, if I can, if I can, teach it as I'm learning it, it goes in much more deeply. And sure. Yep. But so, in, a, I mean, in a sense, your so, decision kind of harks right back to Weston Price, doesn't it? Because it does, which was because so he, he treated the whole communities instead <laughs> of individuals. Yeah. So, so, um, so I, so I joined up with the Soil Carbon Coalition um, and started traveling a lot with Peter Donovan, who was still doing these baseline plots, which meant that I got to travel all across North America um, to, to, to see how these ranchers mostly were restoring soil. And what they were restoring was not just soil carbon, which is like the, the life in the soil, and we can talk more about that, 
but they were also restoring the structure and function of the soil. Because we were testing soil carbon to see whether the, whether the carbon in the soil had increased through increased photosynthesis, increased microbial activity. Um, but we were also testing water infiltration and the density of the soil. And, and, um, and somewhere along there, uh, I was actually a, a colleague of ours in Saskatchewan was trying to describe the difference between unhealthy and healthy soil in terms of its capacity to hold water. And we were, we were making some little videos and, and I can't remember what, uh, what metaphor he used, but Peter said, it's, it's a little bit more like, like bread, you know, that what healthy soil is a little bit more like bread in terms of its porosity. And so when I came back to the Mascoma Valley Regional High School, where I was doing a, one of the many pilot schools that I worked in to try to develop this curriculum, I took out a plate of flour and a plate of bread <laughs> and, uh, and had them poke some holes in a Dixie cup and rain on the flour and versus raining on the bread as a way to describe the difference between a degraded soil and a healthy soil. Brilliant. And anyone who's done any baking knows what happens when you pour water on flour is it kind of beads up and runs off. And if you, you know, if there's enough, uh, enough of water coming down, it's, it starts to erode the landscape of the flour. Mm -hmm. um, if you stick some little uh, blades of grass in your pile of flour, um, the roots are going to be completely dry at the bottom. It's not, doesn't go, it doesn't soak in at all. And, um, and if you do this on a plate around the edges, you end up with a flood and with a lot of erosion and a lot of, um, you know, silting in the water. And of course, if you had chemicals on that landscape, you'd end up with chemicals in the water. Um, and, you know, if there's, a, if there's, if you're spreading manure in your fields, you'd have manure in the river and you have algae blooms. And, <clears throat> and if, before you poured the rain on the, the landscape or the water, if you've picked up that plate of flour, or on, before you rain on the landscape, uh, if you pick up that plate of flour and blow on it, or if a big wind comes across a big field with degraded soil, of course, all that soil goes airborne. Um, and then we have air quality issues and we have health issues from that of, with asthma and all kinds of respiratory issues, including antibiotic resistant bacteria getting into, becoming airborne from feedlots, which we're seeing now. Um, and then I ask people, so what, so what, what do you have to do to turn flour into bread? What do you have to add besides moisture? Well, you add microbes, right? That's it, yeah. <laughs> and what do those microbes do? Well, in a landscape, what they're doing is they're sticking together those individual sort of chaotic particles and turning them into an organized structure, a living matrix that has both porosity and it also has structural integrity. Right. So you has, can pick it, up a plate with three slices of bread on it and you can blow on it and it's not going anywhere. So a big it, wind can come exactly. along in a landscape with healthy soil, it's not gonna go anywhere. And you you've got these holes in the Dixie cup and you can put nine, 10, 12 times as much water into that landscape and it will hold the water. And you've got that kind of resilient stretch too from the microbial um, interaction with the material. Yeah, so, so there's, 
So there is, um, if we if we wanted to, if we so I call this I call this landscape you know this bread like landscape that we know now how to build, we know how to help other species grow this this thing. I call this the soil sponge or the soil carbon sponge, and that term has caught on um, pretty broadly. I first heard the term when those same high school students that I'd shown this to were presenting this flower versus bread thing at a water conference at Tufts University. And there was a scientist there from Australia who was presenting about um, cooling the climate through, um, through better water management, um, through the hydrological cycles, na nature's way of, of cooling the climate through hydrology. And he said it all, you know, all of this ultimately goes back to the soil sponge and the capacity of our landscapes to absorb water. So my students and he were talking about exactly the same thing with two, you know, we were giving the visual, he was giving the words. So, so right afterwards, we all met up and said, hey, we got to get together on this. <laughs> and that was Walter Yena, who um, has become another close working colleague. Uh, and, and we've basically taken that road, that show on the road. And um, last year, we did a speaking tour with over 20 events throughout North America. Um, including, um, I think, seven events in California called the Can We Rehydrate California Tour. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that. So let's let's go and, there. And the, yeah, so that so that concept of the soil sponge of soil's capacity to hold water and and the importance of a healthy functional sponge in in the entire functionality of the landscape and economies and you know so we think like if you have a, if you have a landscape that functions like the bread you all those roads wouldn't have washed out during Irene right that's right we're going to take a break now so stay tuned we'll be right back designers of paradise is made possible in part by mind and media over the last quarter century the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. We're talking today with Dee Dee Pursehouse from Thetford, Vermont, talking about soil microbes, the con continuity between the microbial community and the soil and our own bodies and health. And we're also talking about soil sponges. So we're going to get right back into that. Well, you know what I really like about the the, the modeling and the, and the metaphor of the bread dough is is that it's so familiar to people and it holds, mm -hmm. as as mm -hmm. you've described, it holds through so many different issues of soil treatment. Yeah, I yeah. think it's absolutely fabulous. So I've I've yeah. keep adding on to that now. I put little monopoly houses on top and Put six plants in there. And <laughs> well, one of the things that you'd mentioned before we started recording was that the um, the soil sponge concept 
is enabling you to bring folks together which might otherwise have chosen division or opposite sides in a more conventional climate conversation. Right. So, so when I, so that when the curriculum finally came out, this sort of facilitator's manual that was really geared towards all ages, but um, I was working at that point with something called the USDA Southern Plains Climate Hub, um, which is which is a USDA program to help farmers become more resilient to climate change. And, and the Southern Plains one is Oklahoma and Texas, and I think one other state in there. Still funded? What's that? Still, is it still yeah, that's a really funny story, I will tell you. So, okay. so, so, they, so they, um, they heard that I was working on curriculum and said, hey, um, we want some curriculum for the FFA program in Oklahoma around this. And so they helped. Hey, they helped fund it. That was that was really, you know, an essential part of of that coming to life. And so I knew that one of the primary audiences for this facilitator's manual or this curriculum was going to be um, ag teachers in Oklahoma who who are not, you know, not necessarily comfortable with talking about climate change. Um, no matter what their beliefs are, what you know, their students may not be comfortable with it as well. So it's for a, a pretty conservative audience. And so I, I called that manual Understanding Soil Health and Watershed Function. And that's available as a free download. Um, at, at, uh, what's the easiest place to get it would be probably at ddpursthouse.com or at soilcarboncoalition.org. Okay, okay. Um, and um, and so <laughs> right after the last election, someone from the General Office of Accountability, I believe, um, you know, from the central government went to the, went, you know, they were going around to every department, U.S. department that had the word climate change in the title. And, um, and they went to the, the climate hubs and they said, what are you working on? So the Southern Plain Hub, passed across this manuscript of mine that they were proofreading <laughs> that had that did not have the word uh, climate change in the title or anywhere in the book, you know, 150 page book. Um, and yet really it, it's, you know, really it is talking about resilience to flooding and drought, et cetera. And, um, and the, the climate hubs were one of the few programs I think that was not, um, you know, not defunded in some ways are down downfunded. So th that was the that was one of the first ways where I realized, okay, this is um, this is really key here. And the other thing was that as I was traveling around to all these ranches around the country and talking to these amazing people who are doing incredible work at restoring landscapes, I was talking to a lot of people who um, would be considered climate deniers. I don't really like that term because most of them just have a different, um, a different viewpoint about what's going on with the climate. And it's very different from person to person. They're, they really shouldn't be lumped into a group any more than anyone else should. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but, but I became quite fond of a lot of these folks and, and realized I, I don't want to be doing work that is dividing people who are doing probably 
better work than what I've seen among a lot of the liberal community at addressing climate resilience and climate change just under a different name. I don't, I don't want to put a wedge in there. So, so I, in general, I do try to uh, frame my work in ways that is, that can bring both, you know, not just both groups. It's not really a two groups. It's, it's a, it's an ecological landscape of people's understanding of what's going on with soil health and watershed function. Right? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and performing like a good microbe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or a, a good, a good, uh, you know, soil fungus. Yes. So, so I've developed really an appreciation for, um, for the work that these folks are doing and um, for the variety of, of ideas and opinions out there about what's going on. Um, I've had people from the oil industry, uh, there's sort of a funny story. Uh, I was looking for water infiltration rings to teach while I was out in Oklahoma and um, realized that the ones I didn't, I hadn't brought mine because they couldn't go on the plane and I'd figured that someone else had them, but they didn't. And, um, and I was driving around and I'm kind of fascinated by oil infrastructure. <laughs> the, the, when, you know, cause you don't, we don't see them in the Northeast, right? And drive around and you see these huge pumps and these, all these things going on. And so I stopped to, to look at something and then I realized it was a, um, like a manufacturing place that was manufacturing pipe pipes and also selling things to the oil industry. Uh, and I, and I went in and it was a machine shop. I guess that's the right word for it. I went into this machine shop and said, is there any chance that you could cut some infiltration rings for me? Some, you know, just some pipes about this size. And, and they said, well, sure. What are you, you know, what are you using it for? And I explained that I was teaching this concept of the soil sponge um, and it's about resilience to flooding and drought and that I was teaching it to high school students in Oklahoma and, and the guy working there said, oh, were you just at that, that talk by the, the rancher down the, down the road? And I said, yeah, yeah, I was at that too. And he said, oh, I wish I could have gone. I'm, I'm totally in support of this whole thing about soil carbon and restoring soil functionality, et cetera and really excited and just let me know anything I can do to help you know you can have these for free let me know if you're doing anything else in the area and you need more materials and I just thought wow here's this guy you know <laughs> I mean he's not an executive in the oil industry but <laughs> but um it was just a just a real reminder that we have allies everywhere and that language really matters as to how we frame things. That's so important. I, I think I, it certainly was my experience. Um, I don't think it started in Vermont, but you know, during the time I was in Vermont and doing a lot of speaking about uh, issues that I might have thought were too far afield for people's local interests, I found, uh, you know, I was working with human rights and, and indigenous people's issues um, and a certain amount on tropical forestry or, or deforestation. But similar experience in, in that you change the language or you, you invite people to even suggest the language that they're, mm -hmm. that they're familiar with discussing things in. And it opens up, you know, and it's, it, it's so, unlikely that you'll actually you know wind up foundering on some kind of reef of disagreement 
uh, you know, people love to talk to each other and they like to fix things and they like to understand things. It's, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful unifier. Yeah. Um, why don't you take us, I mean, we, we've started nice and nice and local and um, kind of moved out now across the country. How about taking us a little bit into the work that you've been doing with the Farmer Field School for the uh, um, UN and, and maybe some of the work that, that you've been doing um, in India? Yes, so I haven't actually gotten over there yet. That's happening next month. But, okay, okay. Uh, but this manual, this Understanding Soil Health and Watershed Function manual, when I put it out online as a free download, um, I asked people to just fill out a very short form telling me who they are um, and, and what projects they're working on. And, um, uh, and that, through that, I've come to understand that they're just an incredible number of great projects around the world and um, that are all working on kind of similar issues and that mostly don't know about each other you know so people have downloaded the manual from over 50 countries including like the permaculture education centers in vietnam and um you know and french you know cheese makers and <laughs> um, so i get to learn about all these projects um i i got somehow onto a mailing list. Oh, I guess it was, yeah. So I, so I got invited to speak at World Soil Day, which um, it, at the UN. And um, because of having spoken there, I'm, I now am on a mailing list for UN announcements, etc. Okay, so that, that was a couple of years ago, right? It was a couple of years ago, yep. yeah. Um, and, and to me, that's just a, a great indicator, someone who never went back to school for any of this stuff that, that um, you, you know, you don't need you don't need a formal education to to really know a subject matter enough to 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 make change in the world and that's that's of been course. one of the big lessons out of this um so so i got an invitation to um to contribute to a technical manual on soil soil carbon management that the un fao food and agriculture organization was putting together and uh, and as I was writing this chapter on new new horizons in in this area, um, I was looking for UN projects that were already working on this, trying to understand what they were already doing. And I came across something about the Farmer Field School program, and it's a very cool program that the Food and Agriculture Organization is doing around the world, um, but I, not probably not in the states, um, more in the global south. That essentially gets farmers doing their own research about what's happening in the land around them and um so i reached out to them and said hey uh this is very similar to what we're doing with the soil carbon coalition with these monitoring initiatives etc and um and here's this this uh facilitators manual that seems like it might be really useful to you and they immediately wrote back and were very excited and said yes this is totally the kind of thing that we're doing and and um invited me to kind of participate in their listserv and not that long after that i got an email saying would you like to come to india to do a kind of a train the trainers thing with this zero budget natural farming initiative and um the zero budget natural farming initiative is essentially brings all of the soil health principles which is 
keeping soil, keeping soil covered, keeping living roots in the ground, not tilling the soil, um, reducing stresses like pesticides and so it's kind of organic farming plus no-till um, would be one way of describing that. Okay. And um, and 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 integrating animals into the system. So so they have gotten in this one state of Andhra Pradesh. Uh, somewhere between half a million and a million farmers to adopt this, mostly women smallholder farmers um, teaching each other. And it was started by these women's self-help groups. They're the ones who, who basically spread it around. Um, they didn't come up with the concept, but they're the main vehicle for, for the information moving from one group to another, from one village to another. So um, there's an aim to have the entire state of Andhra Pradesh, which would be, I think, six million or eight million farmers all be a zero budget natural farming initiative. So, then um, the UN Farmer Field School Program has partnered with them to make this happen. And so they invited me to come over and help them develop more curriculum for them to train folks there that is culturally appropriate, that is, you know, they're using their own creative versions. They're already using this bread and flour thing to, to train everybody there. So <laughs> um, you just never know where something's going to go. Uh, but I'm, but in about a month, I'll be heading over there um, with my colleague Walter Yena from Australia, who's going to do um, some work with policymakers as well. Um, and we're, we're going to go visit a bunch of the farms. We're going to um, teach some of the some of the ways that we think about the soil sponge and its tremendous effects on on everything from local flooding to actual regional regional cooling, which we haven't talked about yet. But uh, to get them to understand the implications of what they're doing, that it's not just about growing more food; it's really about managing water and managing temperature in their region as well. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, um, the other aspects of, of all of that. Well, so, so what I like to do there is to have, when I'm, when I'm teaching, I have people look at a, there's a fence line photo from South, South Africa that, that has one side that's been restored and one side that's degraded. So one side is sort of a desertified landscape and the other side is a grassland. Um, and this was this was restored through holistic plant grazing. But um, I'll have them either look at that picture or just imagine that it's a 90 degree day out and you're somewhere where there's pavement and there's a and there's a grassy lawn or park nearby and you're barefoot. Okay, so first of all, uh, you're walking on the pavement, you see the grass, you obviously jump onto the grass. Why do you jump onto the grass? So first of all, in the grass, right, you have, so you have some soil, there's potential for some soil moisture underneath it. And so the, the, you know, the, the landscape itself is going to be cooler. The land, yeah, the land itself will be cool. The land, yeah, the land itself, the surface is going to be cooler. And that's for two reasons. One is that there's soil moisture in there that is continually evaporating. And also because the plants are continually transpiring or evapotranspiring. And, and when there's moisture held in a landscape or in a plant and it's evapotranspiring, um, it's essentially the same thing as us sweating. 
So yeah. when, we, when we sweat, we cool off. And the reason is, is that as water turns from a liquid state to water vapor or to a gas, uh, it, it removes, it takes calories to do that and it essentially removes heat from the surface and it turns um, sensible heat or heat that we can feel into something called latent heat, which is heat that's, that's traveling from one place to another but can't, can't actually be felt. Um, right, so the this heat is, is basic is, physics, yeah. Yeah, it's essentially heat escaping. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and it doesn't, and that heat doesn't, um, doesn't become sensible heat again until that water recondenses further up away from the surface. So, um, and we can think of this also with like a frying pan, right? If, you, if you've got a frying pan, a cast iron pan, um, you pour, mm -hmm. if you want to cool it off, you can pour water onto it and the surface will, will cool and that's, that water vapor will rise up. But if you put your hand above it, it'll recondense on your hand and burn your hand as that heat becomes sensible again. So the, the air above the pan will, will be nearly as hot as the pan surface was when you poured the water on it. Mm -hmm. so, um, so this is happening in landscapes all the time. But when we have bare soil or pavement, the land loses its capacity to cool itself in that way to a large degree. And what we're seeing is that large parts of the world have become desertified or have become degraded or are just being managed in a way that there are no cover crops, for example, or are being grazed in such a way that the land has degraded. So there's just a sprinkling of little deserty plants and a bunch of unhappy cows wandering around. So it's, it's equivalent of, of massively spreading parking lots. Exactly, exactly. Even if, it, even if it's a soil-based landscape. Sure. So those landscapes are much warmer. And we know that like in cities, um, neighborhoods that have trees in them are much cooler in the summer. And you yep. can save a tremendous amount on air conditioning. Same with green roofs. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so Walter Yena, the scientist that I work with from Australia, he has calculated that in, in theory, at least, a 5% increase in transpiration on land could, could reverse the global warming that we've already experienced. So, so it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's also a little bit easier than that in a sense because, because there are multiple things going on at once. So, um, that's just one of like 10 possible ways that we can cool landscapes using biological means. And the so UN has gotten quite interested in this. They're starting to talk about nature-based solutions to climate change. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So the, so the soil sponge is the route to getting that 5% change. Um, yes and no so the so okay. soil sponge underlies the capacity for a landscape to absorb water and then re re-evaporate it and for plants to trans to to transpire it so if you don't have if your soil is completely compact the plants don't have access to water when it rains right it's like the flower it just runs yeah. off yeah um so so you have to have a healthy functioning soil sponge. On the other hand, how do you build a soil sponge? You build a soil sponge. The only thing that can build a soil sponge is plants and microbes. So it's 
Um, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to build a soil sponge and not have any plants on it. Yeah, it's alive. Uh, yeah, other species. We, we can't build a soil sponge. Only other species can. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a living system. Yeah, yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so the soil sponge is the, is the foundation for this evapotranspiration to happen on land. And, and what's interesting is there's a lot more evapotranspiration happening on, on a green landscape than there is over the ocean, even though there's more water in the ocean. And that's because if you think about a tree, for example, there's so much more surface area because of all of the leaves, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so we can have a lot more of this cooling with, when the more vegetation we have. And, and also the longer the green season is. So and there's, there's some kind of a dynamic there too, like the inter, uh, interconnection between the deeper soil and the, the air above the tree um, with a, an active process happening on the part of the, the tree and I suppose you know, the fungi and everything else at the root system, which you wouldn't find in just an open surface of water. Correct, yeah, yeah. So you ha it's, it's very dynamic and very multi-layered. So that's, so, so for example, in Canberra, Australia, the capital of Australia where Walter lives, um, they, they have, Canberra was designed as a, as a kind of a woodland city um, lo long ago and the suburbs around it that weren't designed that way um, are basically in, in a completely different ecosystem than the city itself. And the temperature on a warm day, which Australia can get very warm, um, is, I, I'm used to thinking of this more in Celsius, but it's, you know, 10, 20, maybe even 25 degrees difference. And we see this in US cities, et cetera, as well. In Fahrenheit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Not so, surprised. so whether or not we can cool the entire climate this way, we can absolutely provide resilient oases for cooling. Um, and, and another scientist friend of mine who helped design a lot of the IPCC models, etc. Um, I had him check some of these numbers and, and he said, yeah, um, on that would that would translate to about a 25% increase in transpiration on, on agricultural lands. So so if we could just get 25% more green transpiring growth happening on our agricultural lands, um, that in theory is enough to cool the climate back to its to to the to the level that we were used to, you know, that we adapt we were adapted Which to. Which suddenly makes the entire exercise seem achievable. Yes. And and so and if you if you don't like the hydrological version of it. Um, you know, if, that, if that's a little too close to the climate denier version and you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, what about carbon? Um, having that much more green growth on our agricultural lands would also take um, tremendous amounts of CO2 out of the atmosphere and put them into, um, into living form, basically, and into long-term soil carbon storage. So the game here is to take to take things that are in a chaotic, unorganized form uh, and to give them structure. So to take CO2 molecules that are floating around in the atmosphere and to turn them into plants, 
into the soil sponge, into microbes, into people, into animals, etc., which is what plants do through photosynthesis. They take that carbon and turn it into life, and life turns that life into more life. Um, and the more carbon that's in a living form and in a sponge, the less, the more, you know, the more the system works basically and self starts to self-regulate and stop self-regulating when we don't have those living systems. Yeah, because I'm living right. systems created the climate. Exactly, right? exactly. It's a living planet and it's, it's, it's thanks to living systems. Yeah, and so, there, so that's the carbon piece that we, that the same action of getting more green plants growing for longer seasons and, and more density, more leaf area, et cetera, um, not only will cool the climate and provide flood resilience through that whole bread thing and drought resilience, et cetera, but it will also take um, that atmospheric carbon and put it back where it belongs, which is in living systems. So, so it's a win-win. It doesn't matter whether you have a sort of a more uh, liberal view or conservative view or whatever your view is of how the climate works. It's all about getting plants growing and getting a soil sponge below them to support them. I like it. We're, we're about at the end of our hour. Um, what would you like listeners to take away from this? I mean, we've, it, it's been a, a really, really interesting journey and it's, and it's very comprehensive. Um, if, if, if someone listening to this is really, really excited and, and say they want to get to work on spongifying their soil, for instance, or, they, <laughs> or maybe they, they don't have access you know, to their own soil, but they're living in a more urban situation, but they want to get involved and contribute in some way, uh, what would be some, some kind of leave behinds from this talk? Well, I think one, one nice starting place um, is if you want to download this free manual, Understanding Soil Health and Watershed Function, mm -hmm. which um, I believe you can do, let me just see, uh, there's several different places. Um, we'll so, link uh, in. Yeah. okay, great, yeah. So, um, so you can do that at ddpursehouse.com or soilcarboncoalition.org or two, two places you can find it. And um, at either of those links, you will find that Google form just to fill out. And that will um, give me a sense of who you are, what your interests are. And it will also tie you into the um, a list where I, that I send out very occasionally, but about workshops, webinars, and other upcoming things, ways that you can start learning and get involved. Um, you can also find my email there. Um, if you have a particular thing that you're interested in doing, um, I'm busy enough now that email is not always the best way to get in touch with me. So if you do email mm -hmm. and you don't hear back, um, Eric can probably tell you this. <laughs> Just try again. <laughs> try again another day. Yeah, we managed. We, we managed to connect enough. Things disappear very quickly in my inbox, and once they're yeah. down down below, they're hard to resurface. Or okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll make sure people have, have access to that form yeah. as well. Yeah, but that, that, yeah, that form um, is a great place to do it because then, then, then you'll, you'll be on the list of people to, who, who know whatever's coming up. And we do it, we have a great um, conference once or twice a year um, that's very in-depth, very participatory. It's kind of an unconference uh -huh. uh, for people who are interested in um, leading these kinds of initiatives or just learning more. Um, the online courses are really geared towards, again, they're very participatory and they are um, really helping people to know enough that they can turn around and start teaching um, and giving. Beautiful. 
And the book? And um, so the so the original book that we were talking about is called The Ecology of Care, and that is available also through my website and and as well on Amazon and Kindle. Okay. And I'd encourage people to to yeah do some reading. Um, there there are a lot of great video links on um, the RehydrateCalifornia.org website that will give you give you a bigger view of of what's possible. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.